0: Progress Versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Episode 1. From Flintstones to Smartphones. Digging for potatoes in my vegetable patch one summer's evening a few years ago, I came across a weird-looking stone. Sharply pointed at one end, its rounded base fitted neatly into the palm of my hand. It felt almost as if it had been made to be held. As I washed the mud off in the kitchen sink, I realised what it was. I was holding a Stone Age hand axe. If it was as ancient as some of the flint tools once found on the other side of the valley, it could have been produced by Homo Heidelbergis, an early type of human being, perhaps a quarter of a million years ago. Then a series of thoughts struck me. An actual individual made this. What were they like? I might be the first person to have held their handiwork since they dropped it here all that time ago. What sort of life did he or she have in this place that we today call Essex in England? Were they happy in those few fleeting years before they, like their hand axe, were returned back to the soil? Mulling all of that over, I then went and did something very 21st century. I took out my iPhone and with a hand axe in one hand I took a photo of it with the other. Two handheld tools, each the cutting edge technology of their day, held a few inches apart, yet separated by many thousands of years of human progress. One, the hand axe, made from a single material, flint. It was almost certainly the work of a single person, too. It's pretty primitive, even by Stone Age standards, with a crude style that archaeologists who study these things call Clactonian named after the town of Clacton in England, where these type of stone tools were first uncovered. Appropriately enough, my vegetable patch sits only a few miles away from the town. Clactonian hand axes have none of the sophistication of later stone tools. They're not made by carving something, if you like, chip by chip out of a larger block. Instead, a lump of flint has been hammered with another stone, so that the edges are sharp and can be used to cut and to scrape. All that bashing probably happened right where my house and garden now stand, or at least within a few miles or so. Contrast that to the way my iPhone has been made. It's packed with multiple materials. About 40% of the weight of an iPhone consists of iron and aluminium. But there's also copper, cobalt, chromium, nickel. About 6% is silicon. Then there are minuscule amounts of even more complex compounds. Multiple different materials go into producing any one of an iPhone's component parts. A gleaming screen behind which sit rows of microchips pressed onto a printed circuit board. A battery from which flows the electric current that brings the whole thing to life. Imagine the extraordinary complexity that goes into producing any one of those parts the sleek plastic casing alone is the product of an extraordinary complex process of drilling and extracting oil then distilling it before transporting it across distant oceans at every stage thousands of people have contributed to that web of production that puts the smartphone ultimately in your pocket the story of human progress is about how we moved from a world of simple self-sufficiency where we couldn't create anything much more sophisticated than sharpened stones, to today's world of complex interdependence providing us with all that we have around us. How do we get from one to the other? Aha, you might think, it's just a case of being cleverer. We're more sophisticated, with more sophisticated technology than our primitive ancestors, because we've somehow got bigger brains, you might suppose. It's easy to assume that because we live in a world of greater technological sophistication, We must therefore be brainier than those who lived before us. Actually, if you compare the brain sizes of modern humans to archaic Homo sapiens or Neanderthals, it's clear that, if anything, they, not us, had bigger individual brains. Although, of course, we shouldn't assume this meant they were clever in a cognitive sense. Since we went from having hand axes to having smartphones, it's not our individual brains that have got any better in any sense but what the author Matt Ridley calls our collective brain. What do we mean by a collective brain? You don't need to know much to make a hand axe. Even the uninitiated could work out for themselves how to hammer out something similar, rock against rock, in a few hours. But to produce something as sophisticated as a smartphone, you need to work with others. There's no one person in the world who knows enough to make a smartphone from scratch, not even the late Steve Jobs. When the Apple team designed the first smartphone, they incorporated into their design chips bits and pieces that others had engineered, screen technology that third parties had perfected. Each of those individual parts that make up a smartphone is itself a product of countless actions undertaken by tens of thousands of individuals, among whom none contributes more than a tiny input of the overall knowledge needed. Apple might manage the supply chain that assembles various component parts, but beyond that there's no central direction. The people who mined the Cobalt knew nothing of those who designed the software, who were oblivious of the company that created the chips. Yet together that vast sum of know-how produces a collective intelligence capable of producing something of far greater sophistication than anything any one individual would be capable of making. So how did all this come about? Somewhere in Africa, more than 100,000 years ago, Matt Ridley writes, humankind began to add to its habits generation by generation. We learned that instead of self-sufficiency, we could draw on the knowledge and efforts of others. Humans uniquely started to specialize in producing what they produced well, and then exchanging what it was they had produced for what others had specialised in producing. This change was barely perceptible at first. There are only a few clues in the archaeological record. Seashells and ochre exchanged over long distances, which hint at this nascent exchange. Yet it was from these very humble beginnings, an ever more sophisticated process of specialisation and exchange, emerged and it has, over time, often very slowly, lifted our species from a subsistence existence to a world of cities and shopping centres. Working together through exchange is what sets our species apart. It's what enables us today to order what we want online, to eat fresh salad in midwinter, to cross the Atlantic at 30,000 feet. To appreciate the extent to which interdependence has elevated us from hand axes to smartphones, try this little thought experiment. Imagine that you had to try to produce many of the things you take for granted around you from scratch. Forget about being self-sufficient in making a smartphone. Start with something more basic, like the, the house you're living in. Would you be able to build it yourself, not only brick by brick, but physically make each brick in the first place? And what about every door frame and pane of glass? Or try something a little smaller like the clothes you're wearing. Assuming you found a way of producing enough wool to knit your own garments your dress sense might start to look a little bit homespun. How about something even more basic such as producing a loaf of bread? I don't just mean could you bake a loaf of bread in your oven. What I mean is would you be able to grow the wheat and then mill it and then find somewhere to extract the salt from the sea. If my family had had to rely on my efforts in the vegetable patch to feed us, we'd have starved long ago. Instead, most of us are able to buy the food, the clothes and the housing we need by depending on the efforts of others. Just as we depend on others specialising in the complex processes that produce what we need, we too specialise in something. It's called having a job. Whether we work as a brain surgeon or an Uber driver, we in effect swap what it is that we do for things produced by the efforts of others. You might imagine that the journey from hand access to smartphones was slow but steady. Progress was certainly slow for most of human history, but it's been anything but even. For most of the millennia that separate these two objects, there had been very little progress at all. Almost all human progress has happened over the past few thousand years, if not in the past couple of centuries. For most people on the planet, things only really accelerated in the past few decades. Most people who've lived since my hand axe was made wouldn't have noticed any discernible improvement in technology during the course of their lives. Almost identical Clactonian hand axes continue to be made for tens of thousands of years only slowly giving way to slightly superior designs. These late stone age stone tools gradually developed into even more sophisticated designs, what we call Neolithic stone tools. It wasn't until 60,000 years ago that bows and arrows first appeared. It took another 10,000 years before the needle was invented, followed by the fishhook about 20,000 years later. Eventually the Paleolithic, literally the Old Stone Age, gave way to the Neolithic, the New Stone Age. After that some people discovered that they could get food by sowing crops rather than by gathering them. Farming began. Stone tools eventually gave way to ones made by bronze and then ones made from iron. Yet even once things started to accelerate about 10,000 years ago, if you pick almost any period Over the past 10,000 years, those alive would have been using pretty much the same types of tools to perform the same sort of tasks as their great, 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 great grandparents would have done before them. It's only really in the past few centuries that innovation and invention have happened at such a speed that one might notice their impact over the span of a single human life. It's only in the past few decades that most of the components that go into an iPhone have been made possible. Technology is, of course, only one measure of progress. Even slower to get going than technological progress was any improvement in living standards. Grinding poverty has been the default condition of our species for almost all of our existence. Angus Madison, the famous economic historian, calculated output per person globally over the past 3,000 years. And he shows that until about 300 years ago, People had a subsistence existence. Hunger was never far away. So why didn't we get richer as our technology got gradually better? Incremental improvements in technology over the past 10,000 years, better types of metal tool, improved crop varieties, irrigation, advances in milling, might have enabled people to produce more food But until a few generations ago, that increase in output was almost always accompanied by a corresponding increase in the size of the population. Higher output meant more poor people, not more per person. People might have been capable of the kind of specialisation and exchange that we see around us today, which eventually led to us being able to provide each other with iPhones and the rest of our 21st century living standards. But for some reason, it didn't really seem to happen at any scale until very recently. Why not? My book, Progress and Parasites, is an attempt to explain why. For most of human history, specialization and exchange has been inhibited by small elites. They rigged society for their own advantage with the productive, unable to escape the parasitic per capita output in most societies remained low. There were, however, a few fleeting exceptions to this, hidden within Madison's aggregate global data. You can find examples of a sustained increase in output per person in a few localities and a few occasions. The republics of Greece and Rome over the course of a few generations. Then in the Middle Ages we can see some evidence of an increase in output per person on a small scale in Venice and perhaps two on a larger scale in Abbasid Iraq or Song China. We know also that something rather striking happened in the Dutch Republic at the start of the early modern era. Whenever there was a sustained increase in per capita output, specialisation and exchange have been allowed to happen power in these societies was dispersed the elites that might otherwise inhibit the productive were themselves inhibited. The Greeks were a diffuse collection of city-states some run as democracies or oligarchies some as just monarchies. Rome constrained the powerful by replacing kings with competing consuls and magistrates. The Venetians and then the Dutch dispersed power with complex some might even say chaotic constitutions. But the key is that those at the apex of these societies were less able to interfere in every aspect of social and economic life. Trade and exchange could be conducted on the terms set by the buyer and the seller, not any overlord. Accumulating wealth ceased to be synonymous with holding power. It was possible to earn a living without needing someone else's permission. Laws in such societies could be codified, becoming more than just a statement of what the powerful wanted at any one time. Property rights were relatively secure. Systems of what today would be called corporate governance emerged that allowed those with capital to risk it, knowing that their liabilities were limited. But as we shall see, until around AD 1800, when these kinds of conditions arose in a society, they tended to last only fleetingly. In Greece, Rome and Venice, the parasitic eventually overwhelmed the productive. Early signs of take-off in China and elsewhere stalled. Per capita output fell back again. Since 1800 AD, we've seen a prolonged period of increases in output per person. It's not perhaps the duration of this period of progress that's so striking. Rome and Venice, after all, had a couple of centuries of rising output per person too. What's different this time is the sheer scale of what's happened. Beginning in Northwestern Europe and then America, spreading to Japan and East Asia, then South America, India and now Africa, a succession of societies has emerged in which the productive have been relatively free to exchange without extortion from the parasitic. The phenomenon is not limited to a few exceptional states around the Mediterranean anymore. It seems to have gone global. Why is it that power ends up being dispersed in some societies but not others? Why are the inhibitors inhibited in some places but allowed free reign to extortion others? And why have those conditions that allowed the productive to escape the parasitic gone from being exceptional to ubiquitous? If you're interested in some of the themes that I've been talking about in this first episode, you may be interested in reading more in my book Progress vs. Parasites. It's available on Amazon and published by Head of Zeus. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this and future episodes.